0: This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world Some are already famous Some, not yet so But each is a Jew You Should Know And We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know Have you heard of DailyGiving.org If not Now is the time to look it up. You can multitask, get on your nearest web browser, and type in dailygiving.org. This is a game-changing charity platform through which you can give just $1 a day and join up with thousands of people all over the world in giving incredible charitable gifts, aggregated to vetted organizations doing amazing things all over the world, and it will happen every single day. You will be exercising that giving muscle that is so foundational to who we are as a Jewish people. Please take a look, dailygiving.org and sign up today. I am so excited to highlight our guest today, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. He's a trained historian from Princeton. He's a rabbi. He's the scion of a rabbinically dynastic family and just an incredible guy all around. Shocked we had never met before, but this was our first conversation and we really hit it off. It was so, so enjoyable just chatting and getting to know him and of course hearing his story and about all the different work that he's doing on so many fronts including leading the b'nai zion organization so looking forward to presenting him to you today meanwhile a reminder as always to follow us on social media jews you should know spelled out fully on facebook and instagram jews you should know with the letter u on twitter Subscribe or follow now wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, whatever platform you're using. Please spread the word to your friends and family so that they can do the same as well. Emails, comments, questions to jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with B'nai Zion, CEO and academic, rabbi, all-around wonderful Jew, Ari Lamb, a scholar, a rabbi, a historian, and the director of some really fascinating and innovative organizations. And really excited to learn about those today. How are you, Ari?
1: Great. Glad to be here.
0: Great to have you. And uh, we were just talking podcast gear a minute ago. <laughs> I see in Ari's picture, he's got some really awesome uh, microphone. And actually, it's the exact same mic as the new one that I just bought. So uh, what do you have all that
1: great gear for, Arne? Uh Well, I'm the host of a podcast called Good Faith Effort, where we talk about uh, everything biblical, the importance, and but specifically we talk about how uh, the Bible can shed light and illuminate all the most important conversations in society. So every single week, uh, depending on what that uh, weekly Torah portion is, we invite on a new guest, someone you'd never, ever see on a Parsha podcast, whether it's an academic, uh, music executive, uh, political columnist, uh, go on and down the line. Uh, and we talk about how uh, a theme in that week's Parsha relates to and informs their work.
0: That's really cool. Okay, amazing. So we're going to have to uh, plug that podcast and also hear a little bit more about the origin. But obviously, since uh, podcasting wasn't really around uh, much more than you know 10 years ago or so, and you probably were, I'm imagining. So uh, where were you when it all started? Where Where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, so I grew up uh, in Long Island. I'm a uh, West Hempstead boy, for those who are familiar with Nassau County. And uh, yeah, now we live in, uh, in New Jersey. So we're rather boring as these things go. But that's where I grew up. And I suppose podcasting, I mean, I've always been absolutely fascinated by the role that the Bible has played, not just in the religious life of myself, my family, or the relatively small kind of modern Orthodox sub-community in which I grew up. For me, the Bible is fascinating because it's the moment at which history becomes possible. So, you know, one of my favorite preoccupations is like human prehistory, right? It's like you just look at like hundreds of thousands of years of humans preparing to take the stage of history, like early pre-humans taking, you know, preparing to take the stage of history. And it's fascinating. People live and die and lead, I'm sure, lead meaningful lives. But it's the moment that the Hebrew Bible appears in the scene of history that all of a sudden humans begin to think not just about where they came from, but where they might be going and where we all should be going. And to me, that's a moment that has deep resonance, not just for the Jewish people, but as Sefer Yeshayahu, the book of Isaiah says, for the Amim Rabbim, who are going to affirm that the Torah shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So I've always been fascinated by the incredible potential that the Hebrew Bible has, that the Torah has, to guide not only the lives of uh, the Jewish people, whose behavior it regulates specifically, but also how it has the potential to inspire other communities and other traditions and other nations to be the best versions of themselves. And so that's kind of where Good Faith Effort was born. It was sort of this impulse that I had to say, okay, we're actually at the greatest time in the history of the Jewish people and the history of humanity for talking about how one little tradition from a tiny little backwater hill country in the Middle East Israel, could actually spread out and influence the entire world. And after all, Jerusalem is the only uh, city in the world that has always conquered its conquerors, right? Every other city that's ever been conquered has just become a subject to the empire that conquered it. Jerusalem has always and forever conquered those who conquered it. And so there's a reason, after all, that, that sort of the entirety of Western morality is rooted in biblical ideas and values. And so I said to myself, you know, now's the best time ever for the idea of a small voice ringing out in the wilderness and informing people's morality and values across the globe. And I want to be a part of that and I want to explore how it happens. So that's kind of where Good Faith Effort was born. I sort of said, you know, every single week, let's talk about how, uh, let's actually explore how these values and traditions that we hold dear, inspire and illuminate and influence people from all walks of life with a variety of different interests and all sorts. and And in particular, people who are exerting Uh, a strong and persistent influence on world affairs so for me that's kind of my passion
0: awesome okay now I want I want to bury the lead a little bit more and and come back to the podcast because I want to revisit your your early history and your family especially you have the last name Lamb and Lamb is a a very uh, famous name in the Jewish world any relationship to the great Rabbi Norman Lamb or Maurice Uh, Lamb and, and all of that
1: sure uh Rabbi Norman Lamb is my grandfather amazing and uh, Rebbe Marie Slam is my great uncle Mysh. Great uncle. That's right. So I'll tell you, actually, when when I was, my favorite story about Rebbe Marie Slam is that when I was young, I was about nine, uh, I had a very good friend who had a grandparent, I think, who passed away. And, you know, as is customary, his mother was given a copy of The Jewish Way in Death and Mourning, which is my, you know, my great uncle Rebbe Marie Slam's magnum opus about the way in which we mourn uh, in the Jewish tradition. And my friend had sort of like vaguely recognized, he saw the last name Lamb on the book, couldn't really remember the first name. So we were playing basketball outside and he says to me, do you have a relative uh, who's written a book about like Shiva? And I said, I don't know. I had no idea. So I said, I don't know. Maybe what's his name? And he goes something like Mercury Lamb. <laughs> and, and I said, may it could be. So I went home and I, <laughs> and I asked my father, I'm like, are we really like, someone named Mercury Lamb wrote a book about Shiva. And so uh, he started cracking up and he told my uncle Meish. And from then on, actually until the day he died, I called him uncle Mercury. <laughs> That's good. It sounds
0: like a name of like American gladiators or something like that, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I'm his familiar. WWE name.
0: <laughs> exactly. And so for those who aren't familiar, just to, I just want to make sure that it's people know that. So, so your grandfather, Rabbi Norman Lamb was, was a Titan, one of the, the absolute greats in you know the modern Jewish world and specifically in the modern Orthodox context. One of the great regrets on this podcast, I never had the privilege of actually speaking with him. Interestingly, he just passed away this past year for those, uh, again, who, who don't know of him and your grandmother, I believe as well, shortly before him. And I, I actually listened to a lot of the tributes and a lot of the eulogies and things like that. And I, I feel like I'm kind of getting to know him actually because every week... Yutorah.org or .com, I forgot what it what it is, but they send out a weekly compilation of essays and thoughts on the weekly Torah portion. And the first one that they put every week is a selected speech, a sermon that your grandfather delivered at some point in history, anywhere from the '50s through the '70s, basically. And when he was, again, for those who don't know, he was a famous rabbi at the iconic Jewish Center in New York, and then he became the president of Yeshiva University. And it was a prolific fundraiser and a thought leader author. I mean, really, uh, can't do justice to his biography in, in, in 20 seconds here. But I love reading his sermons. First of all, he was a master of sermonics of sort of the genre that that's known. But it, I find myself kind of being transported every week to a different place in time, whether it's like the Vietnam War, or, you know, Soviet Jewry struggles, whatever it might be. And like, reading his insights on the Torah portion, through the lens of what's going on, at that moment in history and also seeing kind of like the synergies and the um, the similarities to our era and and how as much as things change, you know, they don't. So I I feel like I've gotten to know him sort of posthumously over the last number of months, but tell me a little bit about your relationship with your grandfather who was such a, you know, prolific and pronounced figure in the, in the Jewish world.
1: Sure. It always warms my heart and comforts my soul to know that people are, are reading his thresholds and his writings and his works I was just unbelievably fortunate, in, and in no way deserved the relationship that I had with him. But he was my hero. I was uh, lucky enough to be able to learn with him as a study partner uh, for many, many years. In fact, uh, I actually just saw yesterday that Eric Adams, who is the, uh, uh, mayor. <laughs> the mayor, the mayor, the mayor, mayor elect, <laughs> the mayor elect of New York actually tweeted out a picture of the Sat Marebi of uh, Reb Teitelbaum and tweeted out a picture saying, you know, it's been 42 years since he passed away. Uh, he's a great leader. And I just thought it was so apropos because the very first uh, thing that I learned, well, not the very first thing, but that when I was in college, I began a chavrusa with my grandfather. And and actually there were a couple other people who joined as well for parts of it, but uh, I had a chavrusa with my grandfather. And he wanted us to learn the introductions that great Jewish authors wrote to their works because he was of the opinion, and I think, you know, he's absolutely right, that if you want to really understand the hashkafa, the, the worldview of great Jewish authors, you read the introductions they wrote to their works. The works themselves are great, but the introductions are where all the actions are at. So we read introductions to famous works of Jewish thought. And the very first one that he insisted, he insisted that we read, was not, yeah, I mean, if I ask people, like, what do you think it was? Like, what do you think that Rabbi Norman Lamb, Yeshiva University, the author of Torah Ramada, what do you think he would have us read first? Well, the introduction to Dav- something from Rav Dav- Tzvi Hoffman, from R- shimshon Sh- Sh- Rafal Hirsch. A more modern kind of
0: westernized yeah. thinker.
1: Yeah. Rav Cook, something like that. No. He insisted that we read the Hakdama, the introduction to Vayewa Moshe. To the Satmar Rebbe's anti-Zionist magnum opus,
0: which is just uh, about as far away as you can get on the uh, on the Jewish philosophical spectrum within Orthodoxy from your grandfather's worldview.
1: That's true, and I remember actually going. This is a couple months ago. I remember going through my notes of that Chavrusa, and I saw that I had written down. So we're reading the Hakdama, and the Satmar Marebi is describing like the, the greatest, from his perspective, like the greatest villains of Jewish history. And he, you know, he talks about it. It's bad enough that we had assimilationists and we had people, the Haskalah and all these. But the worst were the religious people who wanted to, a culture. And I remember jotting down it sounds like he's describing my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what well, wasn't describing him personally, but the t- sort of person he was describing was exactly someone like my grandfather. And it occurred to me, both at the time and upon reflection years later as well, that it is certain, I am certain, that that's why he assigned us Uh, that text to read and learn together because if there was one thing that my grandfather believed before and there there were many other things he believed there was one thing that he believed passionately and that he believed was a prerequisite to being a serious torah thinker and a serious lamdan, someone who who engages with jewish learning it was that you had to be open to as many different torah perspectives as possible and for him that began with the Marebi. I mean, he he actually wrote an entire essay for Tradition, the Journal of Orthodox Jewish Thought that he actually founded, and it was called the Ideology of the Notori Carta, according to the Satmar version. Like he was fascinated by really serious anti-Zionist thought. He had a whole essay; it's pages and pages, dozens of pages, trying to understand the Satmar Rebbe and where he came from. And he has, a, if I recall correctly, so he has a line in that essay, where he basically says, you know, like something like, you know, these views are by by any current standard extreme, and most Orthodox Jews reject them and consider them wrong, but they represent a consistent ideology of Jewish life, and they're not without some basis in the classical sources. So we have to take them seriously. And that was really who my grandfather was. He he, he took everybody and everything seriously. That didn't mean that he accepted or approved of everybody and everything. But he did he did give people the benefit of the doubt to take them seriously. And I think that was his greatest strength.
0: I love that story. First of all, it's a story for our moment because, you know, nowadays in, in this hyper-polarized kind of, you know, information bubble, information filter kind of universe, you know, where people do as much as possible to avoid opposing uh, perspectives, you know, that he would start with such a diametrically you know, oppositional view um, is, is awesome.
1: By the way, I'll tell you another story just about that. Yeah, so, so I had his after my grandfather passed away, you know, his children and great-grandchildren were allowed to take some of the books from his life from the svarim from his library. because um, he had as you can imagine just a voluminous library full of all sorts of different things. For me, the things that I was most interested in getting were the things I knew he was most passionate about, namely a uh, Hasidic thought and Msznagdik thought, <laughs> so he was very interested in both of those things. He did his dissertation on Rav Chaim V'lajner. That ended up becoming his for uh, one of his first books, Torah uh, which is all about Rav Chaim Velazhiner and, and so forth. So I really, really wanted his copy of Nefesh Chaim, uh, which is Rav Chaim's magnum opus, and I was fortunate enough to get it. And I remember kind of leafing through it, and he had put notes and sticky notes next to passages that he thought were particularly resonant. And I remember opening up to the end of the book, where it's not, it's after the Nefesh HaKhaim, and it's just sort of stories that were collected by people who came after Rav Chaim about Rav HaKhaim Velazhner. And there was one story in particular that you could tell caught his eye, because he put, you know, sticky notes next to it, and he underlined, and the story is as follows. Students of Rav HaKhaim Velazhner tell about how Rav Chaim used to stand up for a person that the text describes as a balabas, which, you know, for anybody in the yeshiva world, you know, a velajin, there couldn't be a greater insult than that. And so he says, there used to be like some balabas who every time he walked...
0: A working commoner, working...
1: Yeah, just a working man, not a yeshiva... a scholar. Not a scholar, not a yeshiva student who believed... And again, the text is like dripping with contempt for this person. It's like, he was a balabas. He was like a blue-collar working man, not a scholar. And he thought that he knew the Talmud well because he studied it. He didn't study it deeply is the implication. He didn't study it with, with the same seriousness that a scholar might. But nevertheless, he was somebody who had, you know, who, who had gone through the Talmud. And every time he walked into the room, Rav Chaim used to stand for him. And his students approached him and asked him why. And Rav Chaim replied by saying, according to the story, that he said, listen, there are two types of Talmuds that we use in the yeshiva. And at the time, you know, before uh, printing became uh, standard and the text became very easily accessible, you know, you had to choose different printings and depending on which kind of printing you got, it would be higher or lower quality. So he says, as everybody knows, we use the Amsterdam Shas. So, you know, nowadays we use the Vilna Shas, which is kind of the standard Talmudic text. But back then they used the printing that was done in Amsterdam. He says, and everybody knows the Amsterdam printing is excellent. It's high quality. It doesn't have mistakes. But everybody also knows that there's the Zoltzbach printing. And the Zoltzbach print is, Rev Chaim says, is full of mistakes. And it's not very well done. And it doesn't look pretty. And it's not very pleasing to the eye, aesthetically speaking. And he's, but nevertheless, a, a Talmud printed in the Zoltzbach printing is the same Talmud. It's the Talmud. And it's holy. And it's special. And so he says, when it comes to people, he says, some people are an Amsterdam Shas, some people are Zoltzbach Shas, but you stand for them just the same because both of them are holy and both of them are sacred. And there's something about that story that caught my grandfather's eye. And I think it's exactly that. I think it's that my grandfather believed he didn't care whether you were an Amsterdam Shas or Zoltzbach Shas, you stand for such a person uh, and you learn from such a person, even if you think they're wrong.
0: That's beautiful. I guess you can learn a lot about a person by their sticky notes. Right. <laughs> Which kind of makes you want to, you know, be one of those guys who like sticks them in random places, you know, and then wait for my grandkids to discover them. <laughs> I don't exactly. think that's what your grandfather was doing. He probably was actually learning these things, but my my devious sort of mind goes there.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, here you go,
0: future grandchild. Look how pious I was. <laughs> it's like an
1: evil time capsule. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. So as a young child or as, as, you know, a young teenager and so forth, of course, again, your grandfather was a presence in your life for, for so many years. He only passed away this past year. So, did you look to him and and early on and say, "Hey, I also want to be a rabbi," or you know, be whether it's a pulpit rabbi or an educator or an author or a scholar? I and mean, he was he was all of these and more. So, it's probably a, you know, it's a lot of hats to try to uh, to borrow at once. But were those kind of some of your early aspirations, or did that at least inform your early goals?
1: Um, I suppose so. Growing up, he. Well, I mean, first of all, it, it took quite some time. For myself, and I think this is sort of the common experience of a lot of the grandchildren, it took some time for us to realize who he was, because he was so unassuming and so humble. And, you know, you never got a sense that he was anything other than Zyda, you know. By the time, you know, we got a good understanding of who he was, it just seemed so out of reach, right? Like, he he was so superlative and so excellent. There was no possible way that any of us could ever achieve even, you know, a, a tiny iota of what he achieved. But, you know, he was always there as just he bestrode all of our lives uh, with such heroism. And so, you know, he was certainly someone that 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 I looked up to and 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 just had tremendous admiration for. For me, what kind of uh, what kind of really got me interested in rabbinics and sort of, uh, you know, trying to do it, you know, uh, not just as a as a hobby, but vocationally was, believe it or not, I was working uh, in Washington, D.C. This is back, you know, the very, very beginning of college. And back then, you know, I thought I was going to be either a journalist or a politician or something like that. So I'd spend my summers working in D.C. And I did an internship on Capitol Hill and I was in one of the Senate conferences. And so there were, you know, you know, instead of one or two interns, there were like seven or eight interns. And, you know, no Jews, but there was me. But one of the interns with whom I became very, very friendly and remain friends with to this day was a guy by the name of Prashan DeVisser. And now is a a big public figure in his own right. He's from Sri Lanka and he actually founded Sri Lanka Unites, the largest NGO in Sri Lanka that does conflict resolution in that area of the world. And he's just this extraordinary, devout Christian, this very extraordinary person, even at the time. And at the end of the summer, we, all the interns, have become very, very good friends. And he invited all of us to his house and said, you know, for the end of the summer, let's have a little get together, a little party. You know, you'll all come to my place and I'll cook a traditional Sri Lankan meal for everybody. And, you know, at, at the time, I just, you know, <laughs> this is the first time I had ever encountered something like that, you know, coming, kind of coming out of my, uh, out of my community in which I grew up. And so I, I wasn't exactly sure how to handle it, but I knew enough to knew that there's no way it could work. So I just, you know, kind of called Prashan to the side uh, quietly and said, look, thank you so much for inviting us, but I don't think it's going to work. It's just too complicated. I keep kosher. And, but you know what? Listen, you guys have a great time. I'll see you guys tomorrow. I love you all. Don't worry about it. And I'll ne- as long as I live, I'll never forget what he said to me. He goes, I don't accept it. I don't accept it. He said, there's no way that I can accept that your religion should be something that that, uh, that pulls us apart from you. Your religion should be something that allows us to learn from you. And so what did he do, Prashan? He said, listen, I'll tell you what, we're gonna make this a learning experience. You take me and we'll invite any of the other interns who wanna come, you take us to the store, you show us how to get kosher ingredients, you tell us how to find kosher stuff. He said, I'll buy new utensils, uh, and we'll, tovel, you know, I explained to him what toveling was, immersing in a, in a mikvah and a ritual bath. He said, we'll get new utensils, or we can use your utensils, he offered, but I didn't really have any. <laughs> he said, we'll go to my apartment, you'll watch everything and supervise everything, and we'll make the first kosher traditional Sri Lankan meal ever. And that's exactly what happened. And people came and I got to explain to them everything about what kosher was. And I asked, uh, you know, several rabbinic advisors for help and guidance and doing it the right way. And we had this kosher traditional Sri Lankan meal. It was unbelievable. And it was really that that kind of got me thinking, oh, my goodness, we have this incredible tradition and we talk about it all the time. The rabbinic legend is that the Torah was the blueprint from which God created the world. It's the most magnificent tradition of wisdom in human history. It's so, it, it's, it's so overwhelmingly impressive. And yet we so often act as if the opposite is the case. Like we don't, we're obviously not a proselytizing religion, but forget proselytizing. Like we don't use our wisdom to inspire anybody. Like we don't participate in public conversations or we seldom do. And we don't explore how our values and our traditions and our texts and our intellectual culture could really transform the world for the better and how others could learn from it, not to become like us, but to become better versions of themselves and actually to learn from us. And it was this experience that kind of showed me that it was possible. And in particular, that it was possible with people whose hearts and minds and souls were open to the idea of inspiration and 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 biblical tradition. And it actually was that moment sort of in college when I sort of decided, hey, maybe maybe being a rabbi would be the way to actually do this. And once I had made that decision, it was kind of a short hop, skip and a jump from there to sort of saying, well, there's no better role model to have than my grandfather. And so trying to learn as much as I could from him and soaking it up. And I will tell you that his response to all of this was, you're making a huge mistake. Don't ever be a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> he did discourage anybody who, who came to him from trying to go into that field.
0: <laughs> That's fascinating. I guess, you know, it's the kind of thing where you have to really want it. If you want it badly enough, you'll push through the... Resistance and
1: uh, once you uh, push through the resistance, he was incredibly supportive and wise, and just gave not just to me but to anybody. You know, since his Patira, since his passing, I've just heard dozens, maybe maybe even hundreds at this point, stories of people who went into this field whom he inspired and encouraged. But it was only after you know <laughs> some resistance, initial,
0: uh, little initial pushback. Yeah, uh, but it, what's interesting is that your your aspiration in the rabbinic field sounded like kind of a more broad-minded view. It wasn't to become a traditional pulpit rabbi or you know, teach in a Jewish classroom somewhere. It was to, quote-unquote, transform the world and kind of a more outward-facing role. Is that, in fact, what you ended up trying to do?
1: Uh, it was, but I actually see pulpits and educational positions, chinuch positions, whether in high school, elementary school, or, or a seminary, yeshiva level, you have the ability to do that anywhere, you know, at different scales. But I think every single one of us, and this, I suppose, you know, there was just a wonderful article in in yesterday's Wall Street Journal by Elliot Kaufman, one of the assistant editors of the journal, and a wonderful uh, young Jewish thinker about Chabad. And he talks about, you know, how incredibly impressive (laughs) Chabad is. And he had this wonderful quote where he says, you know, the, the modern university offers knowledge and therapeutics and fun experiences, but Chabad actually seemed like it had wisdom, uh, which is very rare to find anywhere, on any kind of contemporary university campus. And I sort of think about it that way as well. Like what makes Chabad so powerful, and it's just one example, there are other movements in Judaism that have that as well, religious Zionism. It's just that mission focus and that sense of vision and mission drivenness. If you believe yourself to be a part of a mission, it doesn't matter what role you play. Uh, And it doesn't matter kind of what function you have, like you're part of the mission. And that's aside from the fact that from a position in Chinuch, in in education and in the pulpit, you have the ability to inspire like dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands, if you play your career the right way, of people who who can go out and do just unbelievable things and truly transform the world for the better. I mean, you think about, (laughs) it was kind of a little bit of a joke on Twitter, but when Naftali Bennett became the prime minister of Israel you know, it like, kind of, like, made its way around social media. Like, oh, like, Naftali Bennett was in Yavne Academy in New Jersey. Yeah,
0: they had little pictures of him in third
1: grade or whatever. <laughs> Unbelievable. And, like, bushi Herzog was in Ramaz. And, like, it's kind of a joke, and it's, like, a little bit silly. But at the same time, like, imagine being the person who taught Naftali Bennett. It is impossible for me to believe that a child, no matter what they end up doing in their life, is not in some way large or, or small, shaped by all of their teachers i mean i know that every single teacher who ever taught me shaped me in some in some way some in very large ways and some in small ways but every single person shaped me so imagine having a chilek a uh, some small part of whatever the prime minister of israel goes on to do in the world that's like and that's just <laughs> enormous impact like enormous impact even if you have 0.001 percent of what he does that's huge so I think it's really just the question of being mission driven and knowing the purpose like there's a great story that's told it's probably maybe may apocryphal but it may not be a story it's told about the height of NASA's uh, Apollo missions right so when Apollo you know when NASA was sending people to walk on the moon so a reporter comes through the NASA complex and is walking in and passes you know interviewing people and he passes by a janitor and the reporter asks the janitor so, what do you do here? You, you clean the floors? And he says, no, I put men on the moon. And I think that's the lesson. Like, it doesn't matter what role you're playing. If you're driven by the mission, then yes, you're putting a man on the moon.
0: That's powerful. So I, you mentioned universities and, and them, you know, sort of sometimes being uh, places to go for wisdom, but often not. Have you yourself, I believe, migrated through Yeshiva University and then to Princeton? Sure. So tell me a little bit about that. What was what was that journey about? What was your goal there? Yes, you were doing a, a doctorate there or and you became involved more in, in kind of Jewish academic history. Where did your career go?
1: Yeah, so I've always been, I mean, tremendously engaged by Jewish history because I think the history of the Jewish people is ultimately uh, a story about the fate of the world. And, you know, <laughs> that's essentially the message of the Bible distilled is basically that, And so I was always fascinated by the kind of the great foundational texts of Jewish wisdom, the Talmud and the Bible, uh, and other works of kind of rabbinic wisdom. So I was always interested in the biblical period, in the kind of the first and second temples in Jerusalem. I was always interested in the first couple of centuries of the common era. So, you know, the years 100 to 700, because that's kind of when rabbinic culture and Jewish cultures, we know it comes into being. It's also where the modern world is made. Like everything that we know about modernity begins in those centuries. So Christianity begins there in that kind of 700 years, Islam begins there. The Roman empire rises and falls there. The concept of a state, of a people, of redemption, of salvation, like all those things can be traced to that period. So I was always fascinated by it. I mean, even in college. So in college, I sort of studied and I focused mostly upon the Babylonian Talmud. Talmud Bavli. And in particular, kind of how it came to be and where it came from. And the answer to that is it came from Iran and Iraq. So I kind of wanted to know what was happening in Iran and Iraq in those times. Like, how can we even better appreciate a Chazal as sort of public intellectuals, as thought leaders, as theologians whose work literally changed the world?
0: I imagine you must be uh, familiar then with Shai Sekunda's uh, career.
1: Yes. So Shai Sekunda... Is like sort of the first and greatest, not the first, but the, probably the greatest student, along with Shana Shik, of uh, Professor Yaakov Elman, of uh, Racha, who was uh, sort of the founder of that field. So he was my uh, teacher as well. I did my senior thesis with him, I then went from there to University College London where I studied with Sasha Stern. Sasha Stern is another, like, Yaakov Elman is a fascinating character. He's sort of like a major Talmud of, of uh, Rav Hutner in Chaim Berlin for many years. Ended up getting his PhD in, first in meteorology, then in Assyriology, and then in, <laughs> and then goes on to, like, become an expert in, in Talmud. But <laughs> after that, I went to study with uh, Sasha Stern. Sasha Stern's another fascinating character. He lives in Stamford Hill in sort of this, you know, Hasidish, yeshivish community uh, in London. He, I believe he dominated a Dayan Dunar shul. So it was like, you know, one of the hardcore shul. Hardcore. Uh, but he's also sort of one of the greatest living Jewish historians of the Second Temple period. Absolutely beyond brilliant. So studying with him was just fascinating. And it was kind of there that I sort of made my shift from studying the Babylonian Talmud to focusing on The rise of Judaism and Christianity, as we know it, that kind of sort of like the first century or two of the common era, that kind of became my focus. And by the time I got to Princeton, that kind of became my focus. So my advisor, uh, I had several wonderful advisors at Princeton, Muli Vidas and and Martha Emelfarb. The most interesting one, just from a story perspective, is a woman named Elaine Pagels. Uh, Elaine Pagels is kind of one of these sort of like celebrity academics. So she kind of, you know, won the Humanities Medal under President Obama. She's just like a magnificent, brilliant scholar whose life's work uh, has been dedicated, uh, at least in very large part, to showing how deeply influential Judaism, Jewish tradition, and Jewish thought was sort of on the making of the, the modern religious world as we know it. And so she and I kind of really hit it off, and I began to focus pretty deeply on Judaism, the sort of early Judaism and its relationship to sometimes positive, often negative, to early Christianity and how early Christianity came to be. Because if you want to really understand the modern world, you need to understand that period it's where everything begins. And so uh, that was kind of my journey there. So
0: at that point, were you really orienting yourself towards an, more of an academic career as opposed to like practical rabbinics?
1: Uh, no, even at the time, actually, the reason I chose Princeton over, uh, over Yale, which were kind of the two plays I was looking at, was because Princeton was sort of more comfortable from the get-go with me saying, I want to take the ideas and values and traditions that I learned here and bring them out sort of into practical work in the wider world. So I never, I was never looking into an academic career. I always kind of wanted to take those ideas and and bring them out, but they were, they were cool with it. So I was cool with it too.
0: (laughs) So what did you actually do concretely then to, to move from your, you know, from your PhD phase into this wider world of, of influence?
1: So I'm kind of a big believer in the idea that career paths are overrated. So, <laughs> so I kind of just like took what came. So I, I'd I started- I've heard a lot of
0: unemployed people say that, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. It's it's true. It's true. I, I wasn't really planning anything out in particular. I sort of took whatever came up. So I started in the pulpit at the Jewish Center in Manhattan. I stayed there for- no, sever- no
0: strings pulled there at all. I, I'm not, you know. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly, exactly. I think, you know, <laughs> the truth is- In retrospect, it's probably pretty risky because there's no way to be anything other than second fiddle there at best.
0: Live in the shadows. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I was there for several years. I think it was four or five years I was there. Uh, And then I became the special advisor to the president at Yeshiva University, which was, I suppose. Who had also been
0: a rabbi of the Jewish Center, right? Yeah,
1: Rabbi Berman, Ari Berman. I actually didn't overlap with him at all, but subsequently uh, became very close. And he's an, an extraordinary mentor of mine. And there, obviously, the, you know, sort of the connection between academia and public life was, was much more obvious. And then after that, and this is where I am now, I was asked to take over and sort of lead the transformation of a historic Jewish nonprofit called the Bnei Zion Foundation. It's over 113 years old and has been among the most formative nonprofits in shaping the state of Israel, even before there was a state of Israel. So, you know, we gave the first gift that established the Magin David Adom, the Israeli Red Cross. And what we were always doing was sort of instead of trying to solve yesterday's problems today, we were trying to solve tomorrow's problems today. So we always kind of looked ahead and said, what are we going to need in the next 10 years or what are we going to need in the next 50 years and how do we provide those things now? So, you know, we're going to need emergency health care. So if there's going to be a state of Israel, it's going to need higher education. So we opened up at Salel College, which is the oldest institution of higher learning in Israel. We knew it's not just going to be enough to have healthcare infrastructure in the center of the country, getting it on the periphery. So we opened up uh, B'nai Zain Medical Center in Haifa. I mean, go on and on the line. Like we established the city of Afula. We established Moshev B'nai Tzion. I mean, just incredible, incredible work. And I was sort of asked to come in for a new generation and say, you know, this is an organization that has an incredible past. But again, with a thought in mind of what are tomorrow's problems that we can be working on today. So I was brought in to focus on that. And it's, uh, you know, there again is an opportunity to sort of take that academic analysis of the world and its history and where it might, where it could be going and put that into practice in terms of where we want to make the world go. And so kind of, that's, that's how that shook out.
0: So this is Benet Zion. I actually never heard of it before until I was hearing about you and your work. What's surprising to me because I thought I'd heard of every Jewish organization (laughs) out there. Um, You know, I I have such a a number of questions about it. First of all, you know, it sounds like you described it as almost kind of like a proto-Zionist organization um, that was sort of laying the the groundwork. But what role was left for it once you had a state and you know a formalized infrastructure in the country? And secondly, what's the relationship between B'nai Zion and JNF or Karen Kayemet? I'm getting sort of JNF-esque vibes. You know, and I'm hearing some of the description about building hospitals and, you know, infrastructure and and those types of things and servicing the periphery and et cetera. So, you know, again, both what's kind of its role post 48 and then how does it interplay with other organizations?
1: Sure. So really, the difference the difference was that Bnei Zion was was always a membership organization. So JNF and the Kakal, the Karen and Kami at Lisrael, were sort of these like top down organizations. Bnei Zion was always a bottom up organization. It actually started just because Jews from like Hungary and Romania came to the United States and needed needed help. So you know these Landsmanschaft organizations were created. These sort of organizations that brought people together and for a small fee gave you lots and lots of benefits, like insurance and a car, you know, uh, car insurance and health insurance and a burial plot and all these things. Uh, And so B'nai Zion kind of at its height had like 50,000 members, you know, membership corporation, you know, membership organizations kind of fell out of favor eventually. But that was always the differentiator with B'nai Zion. It was always like bottom up stuff. So and in terms of like its role before there was a state, after there was a state. So listen, you know, Israel always has and always will need infrastructure and investment. There's always like a next step for Israel, which is the amazing thing about having a country. And so you know, a lot of what uh, B'nai Zion did was actually after the founding of the state, a lot of the investment that was made. Today, the way that I think about it is sort of my, I, I suppose this kind of ties in with a lot of the strands that we've talked about already. But my thinking is, what are the new opportunities in Jewish history that we can play a part in pushing forward? And there, I think, the biggest thing that kind of occupies my time is getting upset at the, what I would call like the anti-Semitism industrial complex, which is sort of, you know, like, it's just an easy thing that you can use to get people and donors and whatever riled up. hanging fruit. Yeah, exactly. And listen, I'm, I'm glad there are people who fight against anti-Semitism. It's needed and it's important and we couldn't do without it. That said, you know, anti-Semitism is the oldest hatred in the history of humanity. And it's been around with us for 3,000 years, and it'll be around with us for the next 3,000 years, notwithstanding any number of strongly worded letters from this or that organization. And so the question is, what's new in Jewish history? And for for me, the answer was, we've had anti-Semitism for 3,000 years, but this is the first time in human history that there's actually also organized love of the Jewish people. And it comes from all sorts of unexpected corners. It comes from other religious communities like the Christian community. It comes from technological leaders. It comes from Silicon Valley. It comes from all, I mean, you go down the line, it comes, you know, you find it in all sorts of pockets of pop culture. There are all sorts of uh, potential friends and allies that we have. And kind of my observation about the Jewish people is that we have to be like the only people in history who spend like 98% of our time talking to people who hate us and cajoling and begging and pleading. And we spend like 0% of time actually engaging with people who are or want to be our friends. So what would it look like? If we actually engaged our friends and actually said, hey, what can we do to build, you know, ever more powerful friendships and alliances for the Jewish people? Because I think part of the diasporic mentality that the Jewish people have taken with them, even into Israel, by the way, is this notion that like, right? a nation that shall dwell alone, which is the blessing that Balaam gives to the, to the Israelites in the Book of Numbers and Sefer Bamidbar, that what that verse means is that it's good to be lonely. And the best way to be strong is for us to be isolated. It's such a strange and backwards reading of what that puzzle actually of what that verse actually means. Like the verse doesn't mean you should be friendless. The verb means that you're special and that you're unique. You have a unique responsibility. But The idea that like to be powerful means you have to be totally independent of anybody else. It's like the most backwards, like weird, unfortunately, diasporic mentality. What powerful nation in the history of humanity has ever been isolationist? It's never happened, never will happen, ever. You think America goes around? I mean, America at the height of its power. England at the height of its power. France, Spain, Portugal, at the height of their power. India at the height of its power. China at the height of its power. You think they went around saying like, no allies for us. No, on the contrary, like you build alliances because that's what shows that you're, that's, that's what shows that you're powerful. That's what, that's what allows you to be influential for the good. And so my thinking is, how do we build up the Jewish people and Israel into, uh, into the, the moral, spiritual, intellectual, and technological, and nowadays technological powerhouse that it was always meant to be. And that, you know, for, we've always been throughout our history. The example that I always use is King Solomon in the Book of Kings, Shlomo HaMelech. When he builds the first temple, he doesn't build it by himself. This is is the, the Israelite kingdom at the height of its power. Shlomo HaMelech writes to all of the other powerful monarchs in the ancient Near East and he says, look, I'm building a building and I'll build it myself if I have to. But if you invest in us, if we partner together, then together we can build not just a building, but a culture, a movement, the likes of which has never been seen in human history. And Hiram, King of Tyre, Hiram el says yes, and he invests. And I think it's in that moment that modern civilization or Western civilization or what have you is born. And so that's our focus kind of now moving forward. How do we accelerate Israel's growth and strengthen the Jewish people through building partnerships with our friends and allies across the globe? It's not about reacting to problems. It's about building an ecosystem for flourishing.
0: So are you working with groups like Sufi and reaching out to, you know, the way kind of Simon Wiesenthal Center does with, you know, through Rabbi Adler's team, the interface sure. work. Is that kind of a part of your portfolio then?
1: It is certainly a part of it. And we have some really exciting initiatives that we're looking to launch. We can't share too many details about them, but we have some really exciting initiatives that we're looking to launch in the next couple of months. And we're interested in areas from... Social impact innovation and its popularity throughout the world and Israel as a source of social impact innovation. We're deeply interested in that. We're deeply interested in culture and pop culture and the role that, uh, that biblical values and biblical thought and Jewish values can and should, and I think in the next generation will play in fundamentally reshaping the face of popular culture across the West and actually across the globe as a whole. We're deeply interested in that podcasts, movies, film, TV, m- music, live events, video games. Like we're interested in bringing our values out into all of those spaces and we're working on uh, some major initiatives to uh, accomplish all of that.
0: What would be an example of a project right now that that you can disclose sure. that you know you are working on or have recently worked on. That's kind of like a signature project, something that really kind of reflect this broader spirit of the organization. Sure.
1: So sort of the tip of the spear of what uh, will be a much larger project that we're looking forward to announcing in the next couple of weeks or a month is the podcast network that we put together. We are creating what we believe will be first and best of its kind of a sort of faith-based podcast network that's dedicated to serving particularly young people, but people of all ages who take their faith seriously and want to see their values kind of reflected in the pop culture that they consume. So we put together uh, a network of shows. We start, much like the Bible, we kind of started with the Jewish audience and then we're going to the Gentiles after that. Um, <laughs> but uh, we have Jew- we have sort of Jewish shows that we've launched in the network. There's my podcast. There's Nassim Black's podcast. There's a podcast on Israel called Us Among the Israelis. There's the Rabbi's Husband podcast. We have several, and we have several other amazing ones coming out. That's Gerson? That's what, and Mark Gerson. I only know that
0: because uh, I listened to the commentary daily political podcast and uh, he advertised his new Haggadah on there, Passover time, fairly relentlessly. Yeah,
1: the great great retelling. It's a great book. (laughs) So uh, we have him. We also have, uh, we're very excited to announce the next couple of weeks, some pretty major podcasts uh, from the Christian world and from other corners of traditional religion that are going to be on our uh, podcast as well. And the way that we look at it is you know we've come through several decades now of pop culture and the wider society telegraphing to young people and and having young people themselves say my biggest aspiration is to be myself it's all about being you community tradition even friendships to some extent and certainly your family are holding you back and the best thing you can do is kind of break free and just do whatever you want and i think we're now a few years into the backlash to that. And you can see all sorts of sort of like unhealthy forms of backlash to that be yourself consciousness, right? Because the the one thing we've learned about be yourself is that if you're going to be yourself, you got to do it by yourself. And there's nothing lonelier than that. And the great breakdown of American community has really given, I think, young people a sense that they've been totally let down by the culture. And you can see unhealthy forms of backlash to that on right and left. You know, on the left, it's sort of the, the ecstasies of, of wokeness. I think it's just the desire to find community. It's sort of like religion in search of a god. And on the right, it's like QAnon, right? Like there's no kind of greater manifestation of the desperate and sad and in many ways like pathetic search for community than QAnon. <laughs> like it's just so horrible, but also understandable, because this is a society and a culture that's been failed by, you know, American life. And at the same time, I think there are very healthy trends that we can see. So traditional houses of worship, attendance at traditional houses of worship in America dropped below 50% for the first time this year, which is obviously something to lament. But at the same time, at the very same time that Gallup is releasing that poll, Pew is releasing a survey that shows that young people in this generation consider themselves to be spiritual seekers at much higher rates than anybody in the last 13 years. And so I think you see young people, millennials, Gen Z, and increasingly we'll see Gen Alpha, looking for something more. Some of them are not, you know, sort of traditionally religious in in the ways that, that you would recognize, but so many of them are. And in fact, some of the most influential people in pop culture are leading the way in using faith in the Bible as an inspiration. So in the world of hip hop, the biggest stars in the world, Kendrick Lamar, Kanye West, Chance the Rapper, Vince Staples, these are all deeply religious people. In sports, Steph Curry, Jimmy Butler, I mean, go down the line, you know, Selena Gomez, Carrie Underwood, Justin Bieber, And then you move into social media influencers. Some of the biggest influencers in the world are deeply religious. And it's not an accident. Like people are looking for this in their culture. Nobody's yet really pulling these strands together. But we actually believe that that's kind of a white space that we can enter into. So we'll have more that we can announce about this in the coming weeks. But we are very focused on pop culture as an extraordinarily powerful force in human affairs. That if we can influence it for the better by bringing our values and our our traditions and our allies and friends into that project, we'll have done something quite significant for the future of humanity.
0: The fascinating and I would say counterintuitive take that you feel there's a momentum in the direction of religion, certainly organized religion, because I kind of survey the culture and see it as extraordinarily hostile (laughs) to traditional values and to really any any values, I would call them orthodox values if you want, any legacy values whatsoever. And at times of like complete deconstructionism, you know, complete tearing down of all presumptions down to the most basic building blocks of biological reality, everything seems to be in question and in flux. So how do you reconcile that with this notion that you think there is a move towards
1: religion? I think it's really about trend lines. And it's also a question of, where you start the story and where you're ending the story. And to go back to B'nai Zion for just a moment, this always has been B'nai Zion's specialty of saying, not sort of like surveying where we were yesterday and figuring out how to react to it today. It's sort of trying to anticipate where we're gonna to be tomorrow and preparing for it today. So I think what you're saying uh, about deconstruction and and sort of cultural decay is absolutely right if you begin the story kind of like in the sixties or even in the late eighties, early nineties, that is where we were, right? So just kind of to return to to hip hop for a second, which is kind of a a love of mine, you look at all the people that I was really into growing up sort of like late eighties, early nineties, honestly, just look at the city of Compton, right? Southern California, the west coast capital of hip hop, the biggest artists, late eighties, early nineties, when I was growing up that I was really into, Easy, Dr. Dre, Dr. Dre, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Ice Cube, and you know, not not from Compton, but Ice T. You know, you Snoop Dogg. You look at those guys, and brilliant. What they were doing was important. They were documenting something, something very serious, and they were responding to to oppression and poverty in a in a very creative way. But you know. The critique of it, which I think is a valid critique, is that it was just like deeply self-focused, materialistic, and and in some ways, not everything that it could have aspired to be, even though very valuable. Fast forward now, what, 30 years? Compton, still the West Coast capital of hip-hop, and the biggest artists in the world still come from Compton, but now the biggest artists in the world from Compton. Are Kendrick Lamar and Vince Staples? Kendrick Lamar is the is the best rapper on planet Earth, and probably the most famous, maybe after Kanye. And Kanye is another example of this as well. Kendrick Lamar, his breakout album, Good Kid, Mad City, begins quite literally with a conversion scene, with a scene of him converting to Christianity. and Maya Angelou sort of is plays this old woman who stops a bunch of you know a bunch of gangsters who are about to accost her, and basically tells them, convert, uh, submit, and they do. And the rest of the album, which is just as stark and sad and by turns, you know, by turns sad and uplifting as anything that Ice Cube was rapping about, but it's shot through with biblical quotations and allusions. You go to Kendrick's next albums, and there is even more biblical stuff. I mean, he gets every single album by Kendrick gets more and more religious. Same thing with Vince Stables. You go to Chicago, Kanye West, Chance the Rapper. These are maybe some of the most famous religious people on the planet after the Pope. It is impossible to look at the state of popular music comparing late 80s, early 90s, or the 60s, certainly, called Homer, and today, and not see a sharply ascending trend line in terms of religiosity. Now, is everybody sort of at the place where they're ready to accept the the seven Noahide commands, the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, into their lives and kind of understand the Rivad's opinion on Eivor Benachat? No, obviously not. But it's a question of where we've been versus where we're going and what represents progress. We're not going to go from zero to 100 in terms of getting to Mashiach. The question is, how do we kind of build small steps along the way? And for me, you would be correct to observe some terrible decay at the moral foundations of American life, but I think if you know where to look, you can also see some just very encouraging things, which, by the way, are themselves reactions to the terrible moral decay at the heart of American life. And so the question is, what do you do with those trend lines? Do you say, well, they're not steep enough, they're not high enough, and they're not fast enough, so we should just ignore them, or they're not serious, or they're not real? I I imagine that's a that's a position that people have. I just think it's foolish. Uh, My perspective would be to say, well, if the trend lines are moving in the right direction, what can we do to raise those trend lines a little bit more? How do we make them a little more godly, a little more wonderful, a little more a little more positive? Because if we can raise the trend line a little bit more now, imagine what we'll be seeing in ten years. I mean, I see this as a I see tomorrow as potentially unbelievably hopeful. And so the question is, what can we do today to bring it about?
0: What is the Joshua Project?
1: Uh, so the Joshua Project was sort of the uh, initiative that will eventually turn into what we're launching in the next sort of three weeks to a month. The Joshua Project was sort of our first stab at saying what could we what could we do to take our values, Hebrew biblical values, and bring them out into the culture. So the Joshua Project was sort of a, a series of videos and and other sort of well-produced things that we put out just to see if there would be interest in this kind of thing. And we were very pleased to see that there was interest. And so once we saw that there was interest there, we kind of said to ourselves, okay, well, what other things can we lean into? How can we be even more ambitious about bringing you know, our values out into the culture and bringing the values of our friends and allies out into the culture. And so we kind of went from like YouTube style videos out to saying, okay, let's make podcasts. And from podcasts, okay, let's make film and TV. From film and TV, okay, let's make video games. Let's make music. Let's do live events. And so those are kind of all the things we're planning now.
0: I want to sort of close with where we kind of started, which was with with your podcast, Good Faith Effort. Tell me a little bit about the kind of the intended audience is it a Jewish audience focus? Because you're talking about the weekly Torah portion. Uh, but at the same time, you have, it sounds like a pretty eclectic group of, of guests, academics, entertainers, et cetera, discussing these broader themes. And you're kind of using the, maybe maybe the Torah portion is just a springboard to talk about larger cultural conversations. So who's it for? And what's been the feedback in particular, outside of more traditional conservative minded circles and you know there's kind of the preaching to the choir uh, possibility of you know those who are interested in listening i would imagine people who are reading mosaic or listening to Tikva podcasts and, and things like that but do you find that you're able to access the wider cultural environment with these kinds of conversations as well
1: sure so our audience the way i think about it is our audience is for people who are either familiar with the bible anybody or people who are just intrigued by the Bible, want to understand more about it and want to kind of know what this whole Bible thing is all about, my goal is to provide all of our listeners from the least familiar to the most familiar with the Bible and in Jewish learning with conversations about the traditions that they care about or are interested in that they've never heard anywhere else and they won't hear anywhere else. My goal in every episode is to say, how can I deliver to you a conversation that you would never hear anywhere else about this particular subject. And I think we've, so far, the feedback that we've gotten, you know, we're not even primarily targeting sort of like a political community. We're really trying to reach uh, all sorts of different issues. So the feedback, for example, from folks in Silicon Valley where interest in religion has been, has been skyrocketing, has been phenomenal. We've had on some of the most, uh, from my light, some of the most interesting and deep thinkers from the world of venture capital and technology in Silicon Valley in the world. I mean, we've had Catherine Boyle who's the partner General Catalyst. We've had Trey Stevens who's a partner in Founders Fund and, his, uh, and Peter Thiel's partner. We've had Alex Jones, who's the founder. Uh, not that Alex Jones, right? Not the Infowars guy, no, right? <laughs> like, right, right. You told me you didn't like QAnon, and now you're going to conspiracy. Alex Brett Jones is the uh, <laughs> is the founder and CEO of Hallow, which is the number one Catholic app on iTunes, a Catholic prayer app. It's fascinating. I mean, it's and Venture Back. They just did a huge series. They just did a huge uh, fundraising series. I mean, we've had some of the most interesting religious and religious curious thinkers from Silicon Valley in our podcast and more coming. But we're also very deeply interested in the black community in America, because I see sort of the traditional Jewish community and the American and the black American community as sort of natural allies. We're two of the most religious communities in the country. And we've also, uh, we're also sort of the two religious communities that have kind of never confused our, our deep reverence for the Bible with power. And so we've had, I've had some of the most interesting pastors in the country on the show. Pastor Michael Fisher, who's the, the pastor of the largest black church in Compton. Uh, sorry, the first black church in Compton. His grandfather founded it. It was called Little Zion Church, but it's gotten so big that they had to change the name to Greater Zion Church Family. We had Van Lathan on from The Ringer, who's, who's got uh, also one of, the, one of the biggest podcasts out there. His face now is Oscar winner. His face is all over Times Square now. But Van has come on. And we, we talked about uh, we talked about that. And my big thing is, you know, I hate that the the Jewish and black communities only ever seem to talk to each other like after a crisis, like after someone said something racist or someone said something anti-Semitic and like we're always reacting. Like, let's build something together. Let's let's have constructive conversations together. That's been an interest of ours. I mean, there's there's so much variety and the common consistent through line is here is the greatest, grandest tradition of wisdom in the history of humanity. Here's what it has to say about uh, a topic of deep interests to everyone in society. And here's someone who's an expert in that field, who's going to kind of tell you how it all shakes out. So kind of that's what we're interested in.
0: I'll ask you a final question that I hate getting asked myself as a podcaster. Maybe uh, what's your favorite episode? to this point.
1: Oh my God. Such a good, I mean, God, I hate that question.
0: People ask me this all the time. It stopped me in the supermarket. All right, but listen, what's your favorite episode?
1: Such a good I, question. I,
0: you want me to, I got 160 of them. You want me to, you want me to catalog through them right now, it's,
1: but I'm going to ask it anyway. It's such a good question. So there, there are so many that I could recommend. I mean, oh my God. If I had to, I guess here, here's how I'll chicken out of the question. I'll pick the the most popular one to date. That's the episode that we, it also happens to be a phenomenal episode. That's the one that we did with Nellie Bowles, uh, who's a reporter yes. for the New York Times. She's... And Barry Weiss is a domestic partner. Correction, I believe they're either engaged or they're already married uh, to Barry Weiss, who also... Uh, she converted to Judaism very publicly, I she, think, she, she is. she is We're in the process. Right, in yeah. the process. She has an incredible... Nellie has an incredible substack about the process of converting called Chosen by Choice, which is wonderful. And Barry Weiss, obviously, also is amazing. We're big fans of hers. Nellie came on the podcast to talk about... The question of why choose religion, like in this day and age, like choosing traditional faith <laughs> is, seems so counterintuitive and so countercultural. Why choose faith? And we, we talked about it. And it was really one of the most fun conversations I've ever had. That's the episode, first of all, it's the most popular episode, but it's also the episode that probably every week I get one, if not multiple people writing to me to say, hey, you don't know me. But I listened to this episode, and it was so weird, extraordinary, interesting, and I just—that's the one I I hear about the most.
0: Awesome, and that's amazing. You were able to score such a uh, trending and uh, popular (laughs) thinker and writer uh, nowadays. It's definitely an honor. Uh, (laughs) Tell people Ari where they can obviously—I assume at all the major platforms—but where can they, you know, access not just your podcast but all of your? work, your content. I know you. in the past you've written for Lairhouse. Sure. And, you know, kind of where can people, if they want to see all things Ari Lam, where would they go in the World Wide Web to do that?
1: Sure. So obviously check out Good Faith Effort on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere, or Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. And you could check out b n a i z i o n B-N-A-I-Z-I-O-N.org. You'll find all my writing there. And uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. So at Ari Lam, (laughs) you can find me uh, mouthing off there.
0: (laughs) All right, we'll have to give you a follow over there. And and really looking forward to listening to to the podcast. Sounds fascinating. Ari Lam, a historian, a rabbi, thinker, podcaster. Organizational leader, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. This is a total blast.
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.